It was 1952, and a young Florence Chadwick stepped into the water of the Pacific Ocean. It was her goal to swim the 20.1 miles as a channel between the mainland of California and the island, Catalina Island. Uh, now, Florence was a rock star. I mean, she had already swum, swam, swimmed the English Channel uh, twice, both ways. Uh, she was the first woman, in fact, to do that. And this was kind of on her bucket list. And it started out great. She stepped into the water. Uh, she was escorted by several boats. About 15 hours into her swim, the weather began to get cool and a fog set in. And she could hardly see the boats around her. And she started to lose confidence in herself. And she started to say, I don't think I can make it. And it got to a point where she was just emotionally and physically exhausted. And, and uh, she said, I'm out. Like, take me out of the water. I can't do this anymore. I can't see. And her mom was in one of those boats. And she leaned over and she said, Florence, don't give up. You know, you're so close. You can do this. You can make it. But th th that didn't even work. And eventually they pulled her out of the water. When she got out of the water and they checked their location, they realized that they were only a half a mile from the shore. She had almost made it. There was a press conference afterwards and she told the interviewer, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think that if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Question, can you relate with Florence this morning? Here's the thing I've noticed. It gets foggy out there. And sometimes it's difficult for us to move on day by day and do the things that we think we want to achieve, and especially like our spiritual goals, that spiritual journey, because it seems like there's never enough answers for all the questions. It seems there's never enough healing for all the pain. And it gets foggy out there. It gets hard to stay on course. It gets hard to focus on God when you can hardly see the boats right beside you. And sometimes we just want to be pulled out. And sometimes we just want to give up. If we can't see the finish line clearly. We're starting, or finishing rather, finishing a five-week series today. And it's been a really cool journey. It's called Let's Open the Bible. And so we took on this super ambitious goal, and it was to go through the entire Bible in just five weeks. And so our goal for that was not to read every single verse in the Bible, because that was not that's not really possible in the time that we have, but to kind of back up and take kind of a 10,000 foot view at the Bible itself. What's in there? The way we've kind of tried to make this bite size is every single week we've given one word to identify the section we were studying. So week one was beginnings, and we got through the first 12 chapters of the Bible. Week two was about a journey, and we went through 4,000 years of Israelite slash Hebrew slash Jewish history. A beautiful track record, over 4,000 years of history of God's faithfulness. In week three, uh, the word was gospel. And that's where the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell the story of Jesus' life and his ministry. And then the good news, which is what gospel means, that God can and will and plans to restore anyone's life who is willing to turn their life to him through Jesus. Last week, week four, our word was church. But what we learned was that as the church, we have a goal. Our goal is to carry on this mission. If God made a promise to Abraham way back in Genesis, I'm going to bless the entire world through this family. And then the rest of the Old Testament is that family developing. And, the, and then the first four books of the New Testament are Jesus coming into the world to establish that plan and bring it into fruition. He establishes the church to be his hands and his feet to carry on that promise. Today, we get to the very last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. Revelation. Uh, it's Revelation, singular. Not a Revelations. Revelation. A little pet peeve, sorry. But uh, it's one. And it's at the very end of the Bible, and 
it's a book that, and so our word this week is Revelation. It's a book that is often misunderstood. It's very misunderstood. A lot of Christians uh, know it's there. They avoid it. They're like, man, I ain't reading that. Like, and, and there's some reasons for that. There's some reasons. Uh, and that's kind of where we're going to go today. Um, the thing about the book of Revelation is that it's written in nothing like the style of the rest of the New Testament. The original title of the book of Revelation, because it was written in Greek, but the translation uh, of the title was the Apocalypse of John. Uh, apocalypse is basically a word that means symbolic uh, imagery and to reveal or disclose. And so there's actually a lot of apocalyptic books in the Bible. The book of Ezekiel has a lot of apocalyptic stuff. Uh, the book of Daniel has a lot of apocalyptic stuff, a lot of symbolic imagery. And the goal is that God, through providing an image to a prophet, a man, a woman of some kind, and says, I'm going to give you these images, and I want you to let those images tell a story. And the vast majority of those are not that complicated. It's just that they're a little bit out of the normal for us because we don't like to talk about things that we don't understand, especially in our, our, our modern Western thinking minds. Another reason people avoid it is because one of the big topics of like the last half of the book of Revelation is the end of time. It freaks us out. We don't want to think about funerals that we got to go to. We definitely don't want to think about our own funeral. And we certainly don't want to think about the end of the world. Like that's just... Whew, you know, I need like some kind of prescribed medicine for that, right? So that's, it's, it's heavy and it's hard and we don't want to deal with it. Um, now here's the thing about the book of Revelation. One reason we don't understand it a lot is, is because so much of the book of Revelation is full of imagery, symbolism, and verbiage, words, from the Old Testament. And a lot of Christians, and my, I myself am guilty of this, are not as familiar with the Old Testament as we probably should be. So that when we read through the book of Revelation and it's something is said and it's clearly a just a recap of something that's been said already in the Bible, we just miss it. And so we don't understand it, and it freaks us out. And so part of the book of Revelation, understanding it, believe it or not, is to read the Bible more. If we read, especially the Old Testament books, more often, and we kind of, and there's books written about it, and there's people that can help you study, it'll help. And as you begin to peel back the layers of this onion that is the book of Revelation, suddenly you go, this isn't, this isn't so bad. Actually, it's pretty good. The message of Revelation is not scary. It's actually super encouraging. And so I kind of worked on this a little bit. And I wanted to, if I had to describe or define the book of Revelation in just one or two sentences, I came up with one or two. It's a bulleted list, actually, that I think will help. And so here it is. The book of Revelation is three things. It's more than three things, but at least these three things. One, it's a peek behind the spiritual veil into a realm that we can't see with our human eyes. I mean, we're, we're human, we're physical, you know, we touch, we feel, we're brick and mortar and, and flesh and blood, and that's, that's what we relate to. But the book of Revelation is a peek behind the veil of this, there's a spiritual reality. And I think that every culture in history has acknowledged that. Uh, I think we as Americans tend to want to just ignore it a lot of times, but it's there. So that's one thing it is. The other thing it is, is it shows Jesus being victorious over evil. That is a huge theme of the book of Revelation. We're going to talk about that some more today. And thirdly, it also gives us fair warning that God wants us to take our spiritual journey seriously. He's like, look, if you thought that this is all there is, you're wrong. And there's more to it. And I don't want to freak you out, but I want to let you know there's more to life than what you see in front of your eyes. And so let's be honest. Isn't that why we kind of show up at church anyway? Like we kind of know that. He makes it very obvious and blatant in the book of Revelation. And so that's kind of like a, a kind of a, a bulleted list of what I feel like maybe would be a summary of what the point of the book is. But our series this week is Let's Open the Bible. So 
Let's open the Bible. If you've got a Bible with you, grab it. We're going to go all the way to the end. You won't even need your table of contents this week. If you get to like a dictionary or some maps, you went too far. But it's right before that, book of Revelation. Um, And if you don't have a physical Bible with you, first of all, we give away free Bibles every week. Hope that you grab one before you go. They're on the shelf before you leave. Take one. Everyone needs a good readable version of the Bible, and we got free ones for you. So take them, and uh, it's a free gift to you. Uh, Secondly, look at it on your phone. That's totally acceptable. Look it up. The internet's a great tool. And also, we'll have the scriptures I'll be reading here on the screens beside me. But I'll tell you this, uh, especially in this book, if you have the physical Bible in your hand or the book on your phone that you can scroll through, you can kind of see the progression because what we're going to kind of do is skip a rock through the book and see where it goes because there's more to it than just reading every word. There's a story to be told there. So grab it. Uh, While you turn there, Revelation, we're going to be actually starting out in Revelation chapter 1. But let's just get some background. First of all, as I mentioned before, it was written originally by the apostle John. Uh, John wrote this near the very end of the first century, in the 90s AD. He was an old man by this time. Uh, This would be the same guy, John, who wrote the Gospel of John and also wrote the books 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So he's one of uh, the authors who has some of the most books in the Bible, along with, with Paul uh, and Peter, especially in the New Testament. That's John. Uh, John's faith led him to be exiled to an island called Patmos. And it was just a remote desert island, and he just was sent there. Uh, he was the oldest living or the last living of the original 12 disciples, the original 12 apostles, and he was the last one. Every single other one of them was martyred in some way because of their belief that Jesus rose from the dead, which to me is a great uh, evidence for the fact that this might be believable because man after man after man and woman after woman after woman who had seen Jesus alive and risen from the grave, they staked their life on that claim, and they gave their life. Even John, though he wasn't gruesomely tortured or beheaded or crucified, he was sent to die presumably of starvation or dehydration on this island. Uh, that's John, that was John. But John, being the last living disciple, was like this pillar in the early church. I mean, imagine being the oldest and last living disciple and being someone, this is the guy who we believe was possibly one of Jesus' best friend, if not his closest human friend, and to be like, what was he like? What it, when, Jesus, when Jesus woke up in the morning, like what was the first thing he did? You know, whatever. And John would know the answers to those questions. That's, that's pretty neat. As John's uh, age kind of came along and, and history progressed, in, in around the 90s AD, uh, an emperor named Domitian came into control uh, in the Roman Empire. And he was one who really started some more formal persecution of the church. And so this is what leads to so many of the executions and the martyrs and eventually John being sent uh, to, to the island there. So John is on the island and he's stranded there. And he's out on the beach and he's having his prayer time, like you do when you're stranded on an island. I mean, what else are you gonna do? He's just sitting there, he's just praying. And he's praying and something amazing happens. And he writes it all down. That's the book of Revelation. Jesus shows up in a vision to John and he writes it down. And that's what we get. So uh, Revelation chapter one, verse nine is where we're gonna start. And this is where John kind of sets the scene for us. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet say, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches of Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. That's kind of part of how the book opens up. So 
at its core. Revelation is this book that John wrote that started out as a letter to these seven churches. Now, we talked about symbolism. We talked about apocalyptic literature. We talked about all kinds of things. But a letter I can get my hand around, right? I mean, we've written letters. We've received letters. And at its heart, one of the things that that Revelation is, is a letter. In fact, seven letters. Uh, Now, I want to make very clear There's a lot of numerical symbolism throughout the book of Revelation. Seven, very symbolic number. It's God's number. It's a number of completeness. And so were there seven churches for a reason? Could he have written it to eight churches, maybe six churches, maybe ten churches? I think God had a reason for choosing seven. I think he was just saying, listen, this is just a thing I like. (laughs) This is is about me. This is about my presence, about my completeness. And so uh, these are also seven prominent churches, Ephesus. You might recognize Ephesus. There's a book in the Bible called Ephesians. It was written to the church at Ephesus. Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, we don't know as much about them. Philadelphia, we know a little bit more about. Laodicea is actually mentioned in some of the other letters in the New Testament. And so these guys were kind of like, you know, we have, for example, a relationship with several churches in town. I know that uh, Cape Fear Christian Church, we partnered a lot with them during the hurricane and the post-hurricane stuff. this was like a sister church. And so these guys were kind of like sister churches. They, they knew each other. And, and the way that letters worked in the first church was you would write one, and it would be circulated among the churches. When the apostles would write a letter, it would be circulated, and everyone would read it. So the book of Revelation is part letter. But it's also something else. Because it was written as kind of this vision, and he's got a message from God, it's part prophecy. Now, when we see prophecy, we automatically go to someone telling the future. And it's because we've read a lot of science fiction and fantasy books, and that's what prophecy always is. But when we talk about prophecy in a biblical sense, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, prophecy was primarily for its first readers. When, when the prophets wrote something, it was to teach the people that they heard. Now, contained in their prophecies were also things about future events. No, no qualms with that. It happens uh, in those books. But originally it was written to these churches as a prophecy, as a teaching, to say, listen, these are some things. Now, this is why. Because in the progressivism of the Roman Empire and the threatening of the persecution from the Roman Empire, some things were happening in the church, as you might imagine. A lot of churches and a lot of Christians were beginning to compromise. They were beginning to lay down their faith and their morals and all of their standards, and they were just doing what the culture said they should do. Why? Because I don't necessarily want to get drug out of my house and stoned to death. You know, that kind of stuff. It's terrifying to be in fear of persecution. Around the world today, Christians are still being persecuted heavily. I've got good friends in India who are missionaries, who are Indian nationals, who their friends and family have been killed for their faith, and so it still happens all over the world. That's happening. But also there are groups of Christians who are banding together and saying, no, we're going to be faithful. We're going to stick this out. And so these letters are written with two big messages. One, don't compromise. Two, if you're being faithful, keep it up. Because it gets foggy, but I can show you the shore. I can show you what's waiting for you if you remain faithful. As an apocalyptic writing, there is a lot of imagery and there's a lot of stuff. And here's the thing, as we, as we go through the rest of this book, it would be tempting for me to sit up here with a whiteboard and, and, and do one of those, uh, you know, like tie the string to the map and do all kinds of crazy zigzag stuff and, and connect all the dots because it's, it's really cool. It's very, very cool. But that's not the goal of this series. The goal is to, let's open the Bible, take the 10,000 foot view and say, What's it about? So we know some facts about the book of Revelation. It exists. It was written by John. It was written in this certain context. This is what's happening in the church. But there's a lesson. There's a story behind the book of Revelation. And just like the rest of this series, 
it's gonna follow basically the same pattern that we see over and over again through the Bible. So that's the setup, and I would like to get into the story. So you still got your Bibles with you. We're gonna skip through a couple of other verses in the book of Revelation. One, to take a look and see what the contents are, like what's in there, but most importantly, so we can see what can we learn about God and his love through this book that's so misunderstood. There are four things. So if you're a note taker, you'll be looking for these four things. You're going to kind of give you this outline through the book. The first one, we're going to start out by just looking uh, in chapter 4, starting at verse 2. And this is John again, and a crazy scene kind of unfolds. At once, I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven. Now, this is a key. Try to picture this. If you're a reader, you're probably good at this. If you're not much of a reader, you're going to have to exercise that muscle. He's painting a picture, okay? I was in the spirit. There before me was a throne. Can you see it? In heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of, now this is going to be hard to picture, Jasper and Ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders, and they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne, seven lampstands were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also, in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the center around the throne were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in their front and their back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third has a face like a man. The fourth like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. And day and night, they never stopped singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, if you were curious a minute ago why I said some people don't understand the book of Revelation, now you know. What the heck did I just read? What is that? Are angels with eyeballs all over them and bees circling circles and circles of people and thrones? Who are these people and what are they doing? Now, remember, remember, we're in a state where everything has some sort of a, a symbol in this point. I'm not going to unpack all those. That is a fun journey to go on. But, but there, there is a point here. And, and I want you to understand where John is. First of all, he sees all of this stuff. You ever seen a, a beautiful sunset? Now, paint the picture of the beautiful sunset using only words. It's a hard job. <laughs> it was purple and, well, peach. Yellow, there was red definitely some blue purple and there were clouds and there was these big and so John does a pretty good job here he uses some things that people would understand he describes some some fine stones he describes the rainbow people get that he describes the concentric circles of thrones and all of those circles and people they they are people and they represent uh, part of God's plan but but here's the thing that we see and this is going to be a theme that we see throughout the entire book what's in the center a throne now, so far, we haven't identified who's on the throne, but what we do know is, do the people around the circle, do they think highly of this thing on the throne, or do they think poorly of it? They think very highly of it. They say, holy, 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 and then they give him a name. Is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And so what John does here is he takes the words that he has, and he uses words like thunder and lightning and, and, and rubies and jasper and rainbows, and he describes this scene that describes God in the center of it all with power. Here's the first thing. It's foggy, okay? It's foggy out there. Let me show you what's on the shore. God is there, and God is powerful. 
When John sees behind the veil of all the craziness and all the thing, and if you know a lot of the Old Testament scriptures, a lot of that, the beast around the thing, that would all make sense. You're like, oh, Daniel talked about those guys. But suddenly, all you need to know is that God is there. You're not alone. God is powerful. And let's move on. Throughout the book of Revelation, John then begins to use a series of cycles of seven. Again, we get seven, 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 seven. Seven's all over the place. And there's three main cycles that we see. There are seven seals, S-E-A-L-S, not like, uh, you know, walrus-style kind of animal, you know, but like seals, like as in you had a letter and you took the wax seal and you closed the letter with the wax seal like they did, like King Arthur, you know what I'm saying? So that's a seal. There's, there's these seven seals, there's seven trumpets, I don't have to explain that, right? You know, trumpets are, and bowls, like cereal, okay? So bowls, trumpets, seals. Now, those are the seven. We're not gonna go through all three of those, but what, what happens is, there's a story that's told through all of these sevens. And the story is the same all three times. So he's gonna tell the story about the sevens and then with each seal it represents a thing. And then he's gonna retell the story again with the trumpets. But now the metaphor is trumpets, it's not seals anymore. And then he's gonna retell the story again with bowls. It simplifies it. You read it yourself, you'll be a little confused, but take your time, make notes, get with a buddy, talk about it, it's fun. Um, but we're gonna look at this through the eyes of the seals because that's the first one that comes up. The deal with the seals is that they sealed this scroll. Imagine a big rolled up piece of paper, parchment, and there's these seven seals on it, and nobody can open the seals. If you've ever opened the letter with a little wax seal on it, it's not very hard. But nobody that they can find has the strength to open these seven seals. And you ever been in a dream and like, you don't know why, but you're very emotional in this dream. Like you're really scared or you're really happy or you just really need some chocolate ice cream and you don't know why, but you would kill someone for it in a dream, right? Maybe in real life you would do that. You should... You should get some therapy. Um, but John sees that these seals can't be opened, and it breaks his heart. And more than anything, he has got to know what's inside this scroll. And so it says in verse 4, uh, just, now we're, we're fast forward a little bit, now we're in chapter 5, and in verse 4, it says, I wept, and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. He just wanted to see what was inside. I got to know what's in this scroll. And then one of the elders said to me, verse 5, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. If you know your Old Testament, you know that when you talk about the, the root of David and when you talk about the lion of the tribe of Judah, this is an imagery for the Messiah. Fast forward, simplify it. We're Christians. It's 2019. We're talking about Jesus here, okay? He says, listen, someone can open the scrolls. Someone can open the seals. It's the Lion of Judah. It's the Root of David. He is able to open the seven seals. So he hears that there's someone who can do it. He hears, and, and, and what animal did they say could do it? Do you remember? Tell me. It was a lion. Okay, it was a lion. But he opens his eyes, and he looks up, and he doesn't see a lion. I love this. Check out what he sees in verse 6. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. He heard there was a lion that could open the seals, and he opens his eyes. They're like, look, here comes the lion, and he, opens, and he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. The lamb was standing there in the center of the throne and circled by the four living creatures and the elders, that same scene. The lamb, did you see that? God was on the throne, but now the lamb's on the throne. That was a really cool day. Boom, something happened there. And he describes it, super symbolic. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Don't think that there's like all these spirits of God, but that seven is talking about the complete spirit of God. His whole, his whole assembly, all of God was there. There's seven spirits of God. And, he, and they were sent out into all the earth. More classic Jewish numerology here. And he went, the lamb, and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, the slain lamb was another common reference 
if, if you know any of the Jewish Old Testament stuff, to the Messiah. And this is really cool. Same figure, same person. Fast forward 2019, it's Jesus. And Jesus is described both as a lion, ferocious, strong, mighty, and a, na- a lamb. You know, gentle, calm. And this is a slain lamb. This isn't the petting zoo. This is the temple in the Old Testament. Someone bring uh, a lamb to the temple and it would be sacrificially uh, slain, ceremonially. And it, any Jew who saw a slain lamb, immediate image. When, when you see Christmas tree, you think Santa Claus, you know? You think Christmas. When a Jew sees a slain lamb, they think forgiveness of my sins because it was so ingrained in their culture. And there he is, a slain lamb, and he takes the seals and he opens it. And then, man, pandemonium breaks loose. Uh, when he opens the seals, some things start coming out of it, and history starts playing forward. And so the first uh, seal that's open unleashes these four horsemen. You ever heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Um, not only is it a great you know, X-Men reference if you're in a vi- comic books, but this is the original. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, and they are war, conquest, famine, and death. And as each additional seal is open, we learn that what's happening is basically all hell's breaking loose on earth. Like there was some perfection, but then evil came into the world. Now, we just did four whole weeks going through the entire Bible. So if the imagery is confusing, I just want to put it in in our physical world and say it's basically retelling the story of human history. In the beginning, God created but then sin hit the world, and then there's war and famine and death and destruction, and, and these things are happening. And you get to the end, and it's, it's, it's a tearjerker, and John is heartbroken. And he's like, what can we do? Who is going to fix all of this? And the people in the book here, they cry out to God, and they say, what can be done about the brokenness on this earth? And then in chapter 7, so if you're following along, you flip over to chapter 7, get to verse 9. We see that the answer to all the brokenness in the earth, the answer to all the pain is, once again, the lamb but not a sacrificial lamb, Jesus seated on the throne. Look at this, verse nine, chapter seven, verse nine. So after this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language. And they were standing before the throne and before the lamb and they were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And to who? The lamb. This lamb becomes the central image in the book of Revelation, teaching us that there is a gentle, sacrificial love that came to fix it all. And then we get into the trumpets and the bowls, and it basically tells the whole story again. And at the end, the solution is that Jesus comes to to help it all. Um, Life gets foggy. It does. But I can't tell you how many times I have found solace and comfort and peace in just knowing that Jesus is there. And, and, and if you're here today, maybe this is your first time in church ever. It might just be your first time with us. It might be it's a long time since you've been in church. Um, whew, first of all, you picked an interesting day to come, didn't you? But I want you to know this. Beyond all of this crazy imagery and stuff that's difficult to understand, I want you to know that at the center of it all is, is a God who loves you. And he's given it all so that you can have your sins forgiven, so that you can have your life restored, so that you can have your pain worked on. And it might not all happen instantly. It might not all happen while you live on this earth. But we are promised that on the shore is not only a God who is powerful, but this is our second thing. The lamb is on the throne. The lamb is on the throne. 
and I get it. It's super symbolic and it's abstract. But remember, this is a vision. <laughs> the imagery to go along with the, the concrete promise that was given to Abraham. As John gets to see behind the veil. Um, God's there. The lamb is there. Jesus. Okay, so that's the first two. Next one. And I'm just going to give it to you. As I look into the world, it's, it's real tempting to be idealistic and say, well, you just need faith. Buck up, pal. Like, it's going to be fine. Jesus is here. But then you wake up in the morning, you're like, I just, I can't keep swimming. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to do this. This is, I can't, I can't. I just can't. This is what I know is real. And this is the third point, And then we're going to see where it is in the book of Revelation. There is a battle. There is a battle. In real life, but we see it played out in the book of Revelation. And this is where the book gets crazy. This is where people start to look at it and go, woo. You lo- I mean, I was kind of with you with the thrones and the circles and the things, but things get wild. And, and there's a lot in this stuff that I'm telling you, you could go, you could get a PhD in four different opinions on this. And then you could argue with all your other PhD buddies and that would be great. Um, that's not what we're here for. The battle that p- takes place in our lives, the book of Revelation shows us what's happening behind the scenes. And so let's just kind of look in this. Revelation chapter 12 um, is where we're going to, where we're going to land. Um, we're going to meet some characters. The first character we're going to meet is a guy known as the Beast. The Beast. You might have heard of the Antichrist. Here's a fun tidbit. Uh, the word Antichrist is not in the book of Revelation. It doesn't exist there. So that's just something. We've kind of compared the Beast and the Antichrist. Um, according to other places in Scripture, the Antichrist is anyone who claims that Jesus isn't the Son of God. So like, you might have been an Antichrist in your own life at some point. Hopefully not today. Maybe that's something that you're, you're learning more about. But that's not part of the book of Revelation. He's called the beast. And the beast is something that if you do know your Old Testament text, which a lot of us as Christians, we haven't studied it, it's something that's shown up before, particularly in the book of Daniel. And the beast is simple. Can I simplify the beast for you? It represents any world leadership that just, particularly a world leadership that's against God, or at least that's not necessarily for God. So in the time of Daniel, it was like the Babylonians, and after that it was the Persians, and history marches on. Eventually it becomes the Romans, and people have said, maybe it was the Germans, maybe it was the Russians. People have called the United States of America the beast. And in a lot of ways, because of this imagery, it's true, because what you'll see is the beast is not a power in and of itself. The beast is a puppet. The beast is a puppet. And check out, check out who the real power is. We're also going to meet in Revelation 12 um, a second, much more powerful figure, and he's called a dragon. A dragon. Now, this is, this is just my geeky self kind of thinking this is cool, but I, I think we've already met the dragon. I think we met him in week one of our series. I think you meet the dragon in Genesis chapter three. Remember the serpent who talks to Adam and Eve? I think he's already been there. Now, either they're the same, I mean, it's not a big stretch to find the similarity between dragon and serpent, right? In fact, it's even been said that they say serpent, we think snake, but there's no reason to believe. You know the whole part where it's like you're going to slither on your belly and, you know, there might have been legs. I don't know. I don't know. If they're not the same creature, they're at least on the same team, okay? This serpent shows up. This dragon shows up. And the dragon, um, he's described very uh, symbolically. uh, You know, we're talking Satan. We're talking demons. We're talking extremely powerful evil here. He's described as having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. Um, So remember, this is Old Testament prophetic vision style stuff. And so what happens is the dragon is going to team up with the beast in this battle that's going to go down. Before we get back to Revelation, uh, I just want to share with you a verse I've shared many times. This is from Ephesians chapter 6. Revelation gets hard to grasp. Ephesians is pretty solid. It's pretty concrete. Listen to what Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says. It says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, we're talking the beast, and against the powers of this dark world and against spiritual evil, spiritual forces, sorry, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm, the dragon. When you peek behind the veil, you see there's more going on than meets the eye. And this is how John sees it and it's described. As you look through uh, in chapters 12 and 13, we see that the dragon tries to attack this young woman. And she's giving birth. And the dragon wants to eat the baby. But God saves the baby. Again, lots more imagery. But what we're seeing play out behind the scenes there is something we've already seen in Scripture. I think Patrick mentioned it when he talked about the Gospels. Do you remember a story that we talk about at Christmas a lot? A young woman giving birth. Do you remember powers of this world that were trying to kill the baby? King Herod puts out this decree and he's like, let's kill all the babies two years old and younger. And like, in fact, from the time Jesus is born until he literally is eventually killed, someone's trying to kill him just about his whole life. And so this is going on behind the veil and it's called the dragon and it's, it's crazy. A war breaks out in heaven. The armies of the living God said, I ain't having that. Our plan for putting the world together has everything to do with this baby. You better back off. And so there's a battle. There's a fight. And long story short, the armies of the living God prevail fairly quickly. And they cast the dragon and the beast down onto the earth. Actually, they cast the dragon down onto the earth. Now, in this moment, something crazy happens, and I think it's something that we can all relate to. It's foggy out there. Why? Apparently, as, as evil is on the earth, it starts to partner up with the beast. And suddenly there's all kinds of forces trying to pull us away from God. And it's not just kind of like subliminal, crazy, spiritual things. It's like, it's like concrete, real things. It's, it's, it's our media. It's our culture. It's our friends. It's our things that we enjoy to do. It's everything around us. And it seems that there's this battle. And it's going on for our soul. In Revelation chapter 13, we'll actually read a verse here. Revelation 13 verse 8, this unsettling thing happens. It says, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Look, if I could step aside from the dream state right now. I mean, you get it. It's, it's, it's complicated. But it's not complicated to look into the world and see, whew, there's a lot of us bowing down to the evil. Like we're giving into, I mean, some of the biggest money makers in the world have to do with exploitation and evil. And whether it's online pornography or sex trafficking or drug use or just the very subtle things, like the simple ways that we just undermine one another and don't love each other. One by one, we're tempted. If our name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, which is symbolic code for I've accepted Jesus, I'm going to make him my king, he's going to be the one on the throne for me. If we haven't made that decision, we're left with the decision to bow down to another king. And as John sees this, he says, man, the world's bowing down to the dragon. Guys, every single week, I stand on the stage, and then we close out, and it's not just token. It's not just slogan. I say, let's leave this place, and let's shine light in dark places. That's what that's about. Because behind the veil of everybody's life, there's a battle going on. And it's foggy for them. And it's so easy to say, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to bow down. But if we can help people to keep swimming... We can let them know there's a powerful God on the shore. The lamb is on the throne. And yes, there's a battle, but there's another thing that's more exciting. We'll get uh, to our next chapter here. In Revelation chapter 19, 
we see the kind of conclusion of this epic. The battle goes on day after day, generation after generation, but in John's vision, we see the end result. And in Revelation 19, we see King Jesus. No longer a lion, no longer a lamb. He's not this meek little thing anymore. Instead, he shows up as a warrior. He's covered in blood, and he's riding in literally on a white horse. Let's just read him as he comes in to save the day. Chapter 19, verse 11. And I saw in heaven, sorry, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is in the word of God. His name is the word of God. The armies of heaven we're following him, riding on white horses. Listen to how they're dressed. You remember, he's covered, he's got this, this robe and he's covered in blood, but listen to them. They're riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of fury of the wrath of Almighty God. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. And listen, just as quickly as the battle began, it's over. Did you notice that all of the rest of the army wasn't even covered in blood? Jesus came down and fought the fight himself. He fought the fight himself. And I, I've, I've, it doesn't say it in the text, but I've heard this phrase, that the blood on him was not even the blood of the people. It was his own blood. I mean, he came in and he laid his own self down. He's like, listen, I'm not going to let the beast win. And with one fell swoop, he takes the beast and the dragon and he throws them into the abyss to be gone forever. Here's your fourth lesson. Victory is the Lord's. The message of the whole Bible is that victory is the Lord's. And look, we kind of come to like modern church sometimes and we want to just kind of make it about having the cool modern praise music. And do you guys serve coffee? We got coffee from a, a nonprofit in town. It's not only coffee, it's coffee for good. You know, and like that's what churches often become about. Like it's like, it's all about this gimmick to get people into our club. But guys, it's not about that. There's a battle. And behind the veil, there are evil forces that want your soul. But Jesus said, nah, I'll take that fight I'll win that fight every time. And it might get foggy, but you keep swimming because you're not alone. And Jesus reigns victorious. At the end of the book, Jesus shares this vision. And it's really cool because I guess we would say this is heaven. Like, I don't know if we would say, like, everything in the book of Revelation is heaven. I don't think it is because there's different scenes going on. And it's, I don't even know. Like, when we walk into heaven one day, we'd be like, Oh, this is not what I imagined it. Or it might be like, dude, John, you did a great job. This is exactly what I pictured. I don't know. I have no idea. But what I do know is this last scene is a description of, of what life is like after the victory. And I want you to know this today, guys. The victory is over. It's done. The victory has been claimed. Now, we each have to live our own life. We have to decide which side are we going to be on, <laughs> who is going to be our king, who are we going to bow down to. That's like the, the whole message of the Bible. There it is. I summarized it for you. But at the very end, we got this promise. So this is in chapter 12, 21, and I believe starting in verse 1. Revelation 21, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Lots of imagery here. We could do a whole series on that, those few verses, but this is cool. Do, do you know what, uh, in the book of Ephesians, what the church is called? We are called the bride of Christ. And, and it's, it's beautiful here. And, and this is an image of the bride coming home. You know, and that Christ is our, our groom and that we, it's just, it's just more imagery and it's pretty cool, but we get that. Verse three, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and they will be, and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the older old order of things has passed away and he who was seated on the throne said listen to this guys this is the message of of the kingdom of God I am making everything new and then he said write this down for these words are trustworthy and true and John said okay (laughs) he wrote it down Man, there's so so much going on. But listen, do you remember? We're five weeks into this series. We've gone through the entire Bible in five weeks. It was a whirlwind. Maybe you missed some weeks. But I want you to know, the very very beginning, the very beginning of creation over here, God created a perfect world in which he walked step by step, hand in hand with mankind. His dwelling was with his people. But sin separated that. Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, and we spend the rest of human history working through that. But he says, listen, there will be a day. There will be a day where God will make his dwelling with his people again. There's another place that says we won't even need the light of the sun because from the throne, there's so much glory abounding that we won't even need it. He'll provide light for us. He is light. And that is the book of Revelation. I encourage you to read it. Uh, you will find that I skipped over a lot of things that it's going to take you, I don't know, years to unpack, maybe a seminary degree. You could buy a commentary. You could start a Bible study. Have fun. I believe God's word is not something we should be scared of not understanding. I think there's a lot of things in there. Jesus even says, I was like, I don't really get what he was saying. And you know why? I think it was because he was saying, listen, I want this to be full of jewels for you to discover day after day after day after day. I want you to eat my word is one thing that John is told to do in the book of Revelation. Eat this. Like, eat it and taste it. It's sweet. But what I want us to not miss is that the story of God is a story of love and redemption for a humanity that was broken and hurt and in pain and a God who says, I love you so much that I'm gonna come down and I'm gonna give my blood to save your soul. In Revelation, that's what God's doing. He's given John the vision to share with believers and to help them have a different perspective on the world we live in, to know that, you know what, it gets foggy, and you know why it's foggy? Because there's a lot happening on in the background. A lot of spiritual stuff going on, but keep swimming because God is powerful and the lamb is on the throne and there is a battle, but the lamb is victorious. Here's the thing. When we're suffering, it's hard to see the shore because all we can think of is the suffering. And this is also true. When life is good, it's hard to see the shore because we've created heaven on earth. Life is good. I don't have any reason to worry. But as the stuff works in the background, God says, listen, turn your eyes to the throne. Just for fun, let's wrap up with one last little story. So 1952, Florence Chadwick attempted to swim the Catalina Channel. She gave up. But two months later, she tried again. And that same thick fog came again. But this time she said she kept a mental image of the shoreline in her head. And she swam, and she swam, and she swam. And this time, she made it. And the same thing is true for us, guys. 
Like, I don't know where you are in your personal spiritual journey. But one thing I say a lot is like, let's just do this again next week. <laughs> one more stroke. One more stroke. God's given us each other. That was last week, the church. He's given us each other. He's given us his word, and most importantly, he's given us his promise and his son. If you want the hope and the promise of heaven, if you don't know that your, lamb, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, I want you to know this is a community where that can happen for you. We've had three baptisms in the last few weeks over here in the pool across the hall. Maybe you want to accept Jesus, and you want to talk to somebody about that today. You can. The doors are wide open to the kingdom of heaven for anybody who wants to enter in. Let's open the Bible. Let's pray.